Jesus' death was for us and for our salvation. We see there in verses 45 to 50, the darkness that sort of engulfs that day, engulfs that day, is for us and for our salvation. He is forsaken for us. It says at the sixth hour. Now the sixth hour is noontime because the day for them started at 6 a.m. Kind of makes more sense, right? I don't know why the first hour for us is in the middle of the night where not many people are awake and enjoying the day. Makes more sense to start at 6 o'clock a.m. So the sixth hour would be noontime. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, so from 12 to 3 p.m., in the bright desert sun of Jerusalem. I don't know how many people have been to Israel, been to Jerusalem. It's a desert. It's a bright, hot desert. In fact, they warn you again and again when you're there, be prepared with sunscreen and water because you're going to get dehydrated and you're going to get sunburned. In the brightest time of the day, in one of the brightest desert regions of the globe, darkness. For three hours. It's during this time that Jesus cries out. The only time in prayer, by the way, in which he does not refer to God as Abba. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from Psalm 22.1, taking the place of the forsaken sinner. They try to give him sour wine. By the way, that may not be a mercy. That may be more of a mockery. Uh, Sour wine would not be tasty and it would prolong the life of the one who is crucified. They confuse his cry, my God, my God, with a cry towards Elijah, either because Eli sounds like Eliyahu or because Elijah is supposed to come to prepare the way for the Messiah. So this is the final test to see whether he really was the Messiah. Of course, John the Baptist fulfilling that role in Jesus' life. And then in verse 50, Jesus cries out one last time with a loud voice, And yields up his spirit. Not the Holy Spirit. His human spirit. Jesus is a full human being. And he dies. Jesus takes upon himself at that moment. The judgment for sin. Just picture that. The darkness setting in. Think about darkness. What is darkness? It's it's the absence of anything. It's the absence of light. Uh, without, Without light there is no life. Right? Think of Genesis 1 1. There's a a void world filled with darkness until God says, let there be light, and then begins the order over his creation. Life can't exist without light, without stars that produce energy. Life cannot exist in this universe. Hell is described as the place of outer darkness. Those who have no spiritual taste buds are described as those who walk in blindness, in darkness, Darkness all throughout the scriptures is seen as a sort of picture of the very judgment of God. Of course, on the, on the, uh, one of the ten plagues against the Egyptians is the plague of darkness, which, by the way, was probably a statement to the Egyptians who worshipped, above all, Ra, the sun, which we get the English word ray. Who's the greater God? God puts the sun to darkness. But even throughout the prophets, in Joel 2.10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun And the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. Or even more appropriate, Amos 8.9. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. And darken the earth in broad daylight. Darkness becomes a picture of judgment. Now is this a picture of judgment of God's displeasure on the Sanhedrin? Is this a picture of God's judgment on the Romans for crucifying Jesus? 
I think more likely this is God's displeasure with sin and particularly upon Jesus as the sin bearer. Why do I say that? Because it's during this very time that he gives that cry of desperation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now understand, of course, Jesus never became a sinner. Never became evil even for one second. But at this moment, he is the Lamb of God. At this time, he is bearing upon himself our sin and the sin of the world. Jesus is the sin bearer. Now, of course, not everyone has agreed with this sort of interpretation of Jesus' death. Others have said, no, you're just wrong. This is just not the reason why he died. He died as an example. He's sort of a martyr to his cause. He was committed, he was loyal to love your neighbor as yourself and he came across an evil world and the evil world sort of killed him and forever he is pictured as this one who went and died for love. One famous theologian said he he is revolving on the wheel of history for all generations to see an act of love. That misses the whole picture all throughout the Old Testament of sacrifice. That the lamb, that the goat, that the bull can take the place of the sinner, foreshadowing the great sacrifice of Christ. Others might say, no, this is just nonsensical. Uh, Jesus didn't actually die for anyone. Uh, He was crucified by Romans. So how does he die in the place of anyone? No one was literally saved from his death. Which is to look at the world as if it's purely natural. As if there's no spiritual side to our lives, which there clearly is. We will answer to God, to him, and to his justice Unless we have a savior, one who takes the penalty from us. Some have even said it's immoral. God punishing an innocent man in our place. Some have even used the term divine child abuse. What if you did this? What if I did this? What if I was to sort of hurt my own children to spare someone else who was guilty? This is the idea that Jesus is the one who says, no man takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. He gives up his life for us. As Christians, we see it differently. We see this as God doing what we could not do for ourselves, as divine judgment taken from us and placed on him. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is for us and for our salvation. As soon as Jesus dies, the curtain is split, 51 to 53. Soon after he dies, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. I'll say more about that in just a second. The earth shakes with this earthquake, uh, maybe what causes the tear in the temple. By the way, uh, the temple mount in Israel does sit on a geological fault. Uh, There are quakes from time to time in that very region. And then this very strange passage that we don't talk too much about, but some people who have died... I would guess fairly recently from that point, come back to life. (laughs) And they start walking around the town, um, most likely, you know, came back to life and were to die again. But a picture of a coming resurrection, pointing to that final day in which God will resurrect all those in Christ from the dead. But looking specifically at this temple curtain, uh, we read about this curtain in Exodus. It's a beautiful curtain. It's a big, beautiful curtain. Um, This, it was a... embroidered with these um, cherubim into the actual curtain itself. And that curtain was used to separate the holy place from the most holy place, from the holy of holies. Uh, The holy place is where only priests could go. So not your average Joe could even go into the holy place. The holy of holies 
is the place where only the high priest could go and only once a year for a short period of time after he undergoes a whole process of sacrifices. And that day, of course, is called Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. It represented the very Shekinah glory, the very presence of God dwelling with his people. The cherubim guarded the way as a picture of guarding the way to God. In fact, what guards the very way to paradise, to the Garden of Eden? You remember when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden? The cherubim are placed there with a flaming sword. No longer will sinful human beings have access to the very presence of God. Inside that Holy of Holies, by the way, for a long time was the Ark of the Covenant. Um, It was lost when the Babylonians eventually um, conquered Israel. Uh, Sorry, Indiana Jones didn't find it. Um, It is gone, lost to history, probably melted down for its gold. So for a long time, the the chief priest would walk in. He would offer the sacrifice and drip it right on to the floor. It's torn here, though, from top to bottom. Uh, No human being went and ripped it from the bottom up to the top. That's because we can't open the way to God. It's not our ability. It's not our works. It's not our rituals. It's not what we do. It is only God who opens the way to us. What does this mean? Certainly it's a picture of the destruction of the temple. By the way, that happens in 70 AD, shortly after this event, by fire. But it's a picture of the end of the sacrificial system. No longer needed. All these sacrifices were a shadow pointing to Jesus himself who dies for us and for our salvation. It shows us that we now have access to God through Jesus. No longer through a priest or a high priest or through a sacrifice or once a year. There is no divide. Through Jesus, our great high priest, we go directly to God. And friends, it is a picture of our re-entrance into Eden into paradise, into heaven. He welcomes us to come. Only receive Jesus by faith. And finally, in 54 to 56, we see the centurion and the woman and their response. How do people respond to what just happened there in Jerusalem with Jesus' death and the events that shortly followed? We read that the centurion and those with him, so fellow soldiers, those who were keeping watch over Jesus, it's a nice way of saying those who were killing him at that moment, When they see this and they see the earthquake and feel it and see all that takes place, they are filled with awe. They are stunned. Now understand, these men probably have crucified hundreds of people over their career, but there's something different about this one. In fact, the centurion, the man probably in charge of the situation, says this, truly, this was the Son of God. He doesn't fully understand what he means at that point. He probably has some Roman concept of the divine, but it's faith beginning, starting, as he's responding. He also describes the women there. The disciples, by the way, are all probably hiding cowardly at this moment. But the women here who followed him, who ministered, were among him. But this is just not the group of people you would expect to be those who witness and celebrate the resurrection. Uh, Well, witness the death of Jesus, and of course they're the ones who celebrate the resurrection, the women particularly. You've got Romans. These are Gentiles. You wouldn't expect them to be the ones that first proclaim truly this is the Son of God. These are the enemies of Israel. These are like Egypt back in Moses' day, or the Philistines back in David's day, or the Assyrians. Sorry, Michael. I know Michael's Assyrian, by the way. So 
They're soldiers. These are the ones who put Jesus to death. These are his enemies. And yet they are the ones who witness and proclaim him the son of God. The women, most of history, women, as you know, has not been very kind to women. (laughs) Christianity stands apart. Not just women, Mary Magdalene, who is described as one who is demon-possessed and likely a prostitute. Witness, recognize Christ's sacrificial death in our place. Friends, when you think about it, who are Jesus' people today? Anyone and everyone who comes to trust in him, right? Anyone and anyone, everyone who recognizes that he died for us and for our salvation. All nations, Jew and Gentile, even, even Canadians can come to Jesus, right? So those who are part of First Baptist, I make fun of Canadians, just what I do. The Great Commission in the next chapter says, go to all the nations with the gospel. People of all different backgrounds. Mary Magdalene, the thief on the cross. Nicodemus, a religious leader of that day. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man and respected man. Me? You? Men? Women? God is indiscriminate in whom he calls to follow his son. Jesus' death is for us and for our salvation. He was forsaken for us. The sacrificial system ends for us. He calls all different types of people for us and for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins, our adoption as his children, and transforms lives in him. We are heading to an eternal life with him, the hope of being with him forever. But that's Sunday. <laughs> right now, it's Friday. Let's take that in, even though Sunday's coming. Michael, believe it or not, I do like the hymns. In fact, my final illustration comes from William Cooper, C-O-W-P-E-R. William Cooper was one of the most popular poets of his time, 1700s. In fact, uh, people said he changed the direction of 18th century poetry. You probably don't know the name, you may or may not know the name William Cooper, but you probably are familiar with this phrase, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform, right? That's, that's his poem. Samuel Coleridge said, he is the best modern poet. William Wordsworth admired his poetry. What you may not know about William, William Cooper is he struggled with depression his entire life and insanity and suicide. He tried three times to take his own life. He was institutionalized at Nathaniel Cotton's asylum in St. Albans. William Cooper becomes a Christian, actually becomes close friends with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and together they wrote hymns. And my favorite hymn that he wrote is There is a Fountain. With that background, a broken man who struggles his entire life with depression and mental illness and even suicidal thoughts wrote these words there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there have I Though vile is he, washed all my sins away, 
Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God are saved to sin no more. And this last verse reminds us that even though it's Friday, Sunday is coming, when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thank you so much for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and for our salvation. And in him, Lord, we lose all our guilty stains. Father, every one of us have guilty stains. They run deep in our soul. Some of us have blatant, outward, clear, recognizable sin. And for others of us, Lord, it's more hidden pride, arrogance, deep-set sin. And Lord, these sins have left a guilty stain upon our soul, but Christ our Savior took our place. In our place, condemned he stood. Thank you, Father, for what you have done through your Son, Jesus. As we remember the sacrifice of Christ for us, help us, Lord, to reflect on our own sin, reflect on the greatness of Jesus Christ, and be filled with the hope of eternity. It's Friday now, but Sunday is coming.